Hello and welcome to another episode of the Exeter Law Review podcast. You're joined by me, Olivia. You have one of our editors, Shania. And today's very special guest is Professor Richard Moorhead. Uh, Richard Moorhead is the head of the law school here at Exeter University. He has um, lots of research and interests, but his main focus is on lawyers' ethics and regulation, the court and legal services, and access to justice. Prior to coming to the University of Exeter as the head of the law school earlier this year, he was the inaugural Professor of Law and Professional Ethics and Vice Dean in the Faculty of Laws at UCL and a former Director of the Centre for Ethics and Law. Prior to this, he held a chair at Cardiff University where he was the Deputy Head of Law School. He also has advised three select committees and he currently advises the Women and Equality Select Committee on NDAs. Perhaps it should come as no surprise then, today we are going to be discussing NDAs, um, particularly given the recent um, news that we've heard regarding Harvey Weinstein, um, Philip Green, who's the boss of Arcadia. Okay, so Richard, just to begin, can you summarise what are non-disclosure agreements, NDAs, what are they used for? So non-disclosure agreements are usually part of a bigger agreement, and they are used to prevent disclosure of information, basically. Uh, they are used quite often in commercial agreements. Mm-hmm. So you enter into discussion with me about taking over my business or or buying my patent, whatever mm-hmm. it might be. And as p- part of our willingness to discuss those matters, you and I both agree to keep any information we learn from those discussions confidential. Yeah. So it protects trade secrets, commercial secrets in those kinds of contexts. Uh, the area where they've been most controversial is in relation to res- resolving uh, allegations of misconduct. Sexual harassment mm-hmm. is obviously the most famous example, but also professional misconduct in hospitals, mm-hmm. in universities, in schools, in hospitals, you know, all this kind of uh, thing. So, uh, so generally used in like commercial M&A sort of contacts quite frequently, those sort of things, but... Doesn't have any kind of commercial context. Not necessarily an M and A. Could be a joint venture. Yeah. Could mm. be just. Um, could be anything. But I guess more controversially used in employment situations. Yeah, that's mm. the that's the area that's garnered the most attention. Okay, so do you think that there are circumstances in which employees benefit from the use of NDAs, not just employers? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, uh, there, uh, and I think that depends a bit on how you view the total system. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, there is uh, uh, a case for saying that they um, uh, help people leave an organisation drawing a line under their unpleasant experience. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, woman B has been raped by man A, doesn't want anybody to know that she's been raped in the organisation or yeah. indeed beyond that. And she might feel, for instance, that she really wants to keep that information confidential, understandably be quite likely to be kept confidential anyway but mm-hmm. an NDA might help her in those circumstances or or just doesn't want people to be able to say that maybe to give the impression that they were a troublemaker to give yeah. us a, a, a less exciting example so person A leaves and the firm says they're a troublemaker they think they've been badly treated and it might just help draw a line under those kinds of situations mm-hmm. uh, the question there really is Who's, who's really deciding why there's an NDA? Do they really have a choice? And if you talk to people who have been subject to these agreements, as I quite often have, um, then um, then you quite often find that actually they weren't really presented with any choice. Mm. It's such a routine part of the case that uh, they are uh, simply expected to 
sign the NDA. Come on, then. Okay, so I think generally then employees and employers might seek to use them in different circumstances, perhaps mm -hmm. for employers protecting reputation, for employees may also protect their um, reputation, but I think quite a lot of what we see is a much darker aspect to the use of NDAs. Yeah, I mean, I think I wouldn't want people to go away with the impression that employees are generally asking for NDAs. They're not. They're generally kind of forced yeah. into them. I mean, there are situations where they might feel like they benefit, and there is certainly part of the logic to them which is helpful to them in certain circumstances but they're not generally asking for them mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh, the other thing which is kind of interesting is that a lot of the people who I've spoken to and I probably speak to a slightly unusual group of people who are unusually unhappy mm -hmm. but they tend to say you know it's after the event you really feel like actually I should be able to talk about this I shouldn't have signed away yeah that right neither I wasn't given any choice or I didn't think about it properly or whatever it might be yeah, almost as though, I guess, given the, the time period in which people usually have to um, resolve employment disputes is quite, is quite short, actually. Yeah. And, um, you know, at the time, they may feel that they want the issue to go away so that they can regain employment elsewhere, etc., and then sort of perhaps feel forced or cornered into an agreement that they wouldn't have agreed to if they'd had the time. Yeah, exactly right. I'm mm -hmm. firing you. I'm firing you tomorrow. We need <laughs> to sort this out. Yeah. You don't and want anybody to think that I think you're a rubbish employee, do you? Let's get this deal done. Yeah, and exactly. I guess I'm like, if you were a consumer buying something commercially, you'd have a cooling off period and, uh, you know... Um, well, consumer rights things. act yeah, and, yeah. Um, in, yeah in certain circumstances but in this instance um, I don't believe many employers would be seeking to put sort of a cooling off period in um, an agreement would they no although people are talking about whether that's best practice now so that's kind of yeah. progress of sorts but yeah it's a good point so as you've been mentioning about the current social climate and how there's been a recent surge in allegations and kind of litigation over cases of sexual harassment in the workplace. Yeah. Like the Me Too movement, for example, has been more likely than instrumental, like integral, yeah. even in highlighting issues with NDAs. Yeah. Like one of the most kind of prevalent cases has been the one with Philip Green, who was like the boss of Arcadian multimillionaire's use of like NDAs and the whole spiel. Mm -hmm. And so just for everyone listening, um, in this case, NDAs were allegedly used by the Topshop boss uh, to prevent the disclosure of multiple allegations of harassment and sexual abuse. And Philip Green has then subjected newspapers to a court injunction of sorts, preventing disclosure of his name to the public. And it wasn't until Lord Hayne from the House of Lords used powers of parliamentary privilege to disclose his name. And in that respect, um, what do you think about confidentiality contracts being seen as I guess, more important than freedom of speech? Uh, I, well, it's, it, it, it's not so much for me about freedom of speech. Mm -hmm. It's about them being used to systematically conceal wrongdoing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the Philip Green case is a, a, a really interesting one because there were quite a, lots, quite a lot of different cases. I think we've heard about five or six from the reporting. Uh, and the impression given is that they were part of a routine uh, they were a routine tactic to stifle complaints about his misconduct mm -hmm. from employees. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it's, it's, it's that for me rather than the freedom of speech aspect that is really concerning. Yeah, it just seems so wrong on so many levels that you s that clearly there is this this issue of harassment in this particular organisation. Yeah. But no one can speak out about it because they're all under the obligations of NDAs, and mm. equally the press couldn't speak about it. Yeah. So that that couldn't help fuel the Me Too movement because I think the judge in the Philip Green ca case refused to name Philip Green as the person mm -hmm. who was 
you know, responsible whether directly or indirectly for um, using the NDAs or whether it was just, you know, part of his larger organisation. Yeah. And that it had to take somebody to stand up mm-hmm. in the House of Lords and use parliamentary privileges to release that person's name. Yeah. I think that probably epitomises the issue here, doesn't it? Yeah, I think I, I probably should just point out because the lawyers who listen to this will be getting quite agitated about Lord Hayne at this point is that he probably did that a little bit prematurely, at least mm-hmm. in my view. Uh, it was an interim injunction. Uh, he spoke out. He effectively then outed Philip Green. Um, whilst I feel reasonably comfortable with that, mm-hmm. it was being going through the courts and there was a further opportunity for the courts to think about it more carefully. Yeah. Uh, I didn't agree with the court at, f- at first instance on the interim injunction. I didn't think they thought about the case mm-hmm. as carefully as they might have done. Um, but I think probably Lord Hayne jumped the gun a bit. If he'd waited for the next yeah. hearing, he might have been on stronger ground. I mean, because on the converse, um, allegations of sexual harassment or abuse are pretty serious allegations, <laughs> oh, yeah, to say yeah, the yeah. very least. Yeah. And, um, you know, if they had been proven to be false, mm. then, you know, using those powers that he did could have been, you know, detrimental. But Yeah. But the critical, the, the real issue, I, maybe I shouldn't have distracted us by Lord Hayne, the real issue is <laughs> NDAs being used as part of an armoury for oppressing, usually women, not always, but usually women, into silence where they've experienced sexual harassment or other behaviour. There was racial mm. discrimination also in the case yeah. of yeah. the alleged against Philip Green. Uh, they've suffered sexual harassment or think they've su- suffered sexual harassment um, and it's quite quite often in these cases occurring yeah. apparently mm. seemingly routinely and the the lawyers uh, have been helping their clients with that in a way which i think goes too far sometimes yeah i think you know generally there is a consensus on that and um there doesn't seem to be any particular regulation of the use of ndas at the moment in the uk can you highlight what the potential future looks like for regulation so I think one of the things that when so when Zelda Perkins broke the story and I started writing about it and uh, it, it pro- provoked quite a strong reaction from practitioners and quite a lot of uh, support for the view that actually something should be done about this. Not from mm-hmm. all of them. A lot of practitioners wanted to ignore it and said this was just a storm in a teacup. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Solicitors Regulatory Authority took it fairly seriously and issued guidance around yeah. why some of the things in the Philip Green case might be a... Not the Philip Green case, I beg your pardon. The uh, Zelda Perkins case might be a problem, the kinds of tactics yeah. that they've been hearing about. And that, I think, really garnered people's attention. So the regulator, the Solicitors Regulator, saw an opportunity to act and did to a degree using the existing professional rules. Mm-hmm. And there's been a process of sort of... Um, developing that guidance a little bit yeah so there has there is some develop, developments there um the parliament have been looking at it uh mm-hmm. to try to push for changes to whistleblowing regulation mm-hmm. um whistleblowing regulation there's some sort of laxity around what that means which means ndas sometimes get into the gap and prevent whistleblowing a bit uh and there is some discussion about further regulation mm-hmm. um not quite sure where we're really going to end up yeah with that i mean we're on election day, so uh, <laughs> Who knows things, things won't become clear that quickly, but they might become clearer in a few months uh, when, when whoever yeah. governs has settled down a bit. But uh, mm-hmm. I think the direction is towards greater regulation, mm-hmm. but I'd expect quite strong resistance from certain um, employment lawyers mm-hmm. and their clients who would very much like to retain the mm-hmm. ability to 
stifle certain kinds of yeah. comment or mm -hmm. restrain certain kinds of comments depending on your view of them. Yeah, no, I, I agree in that circumstance that regulation is important, but I think it's who we're regulating, which mm. um, might be the issue in that if we are regulating professionals, solicitors and barristers who might be looking at drafting, yeah. helping their clients yeah. write these sorts of agreements, yeah. ultimately they're working on instruction mm -hmm. from a client. Um, so if we track back to the source of the issue, it's not that perhaps the solicitors are doing their job, you know, how they do their job matters, but doing their job, it's the people who are wanting to use the MDAs, the employers, and the HR professionals who are perhaps instigating the use of these agreements. So that's a really interesting point, because I think one of the things I talk about quite a lot when I talk about lawyers' ethics and their clients is there's a kind of mutually assured amorality mm -hmm. to it, or immorality to it, mm -hmm. where the client says, I've taken my lawyer's advice, and the lawyer says... I'm only following my client's instructions. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the ethics rules, and that one of the really good things about the Zelda Perkins case is it's, it's made the profession take some notice of this. Mm -hmm. If you look at their rules, they take responsibility for their yeah. own strategy. So they have to take, they, they adopt a tactic which is unethical. They can't say the client has told me to do it. Mm -hmm. They have to think about whether they are taking unfair advantage of yeah. somebody like Zelda Perkins, mm -hmm. for instance. Uh, and so uh, they can't yeah. simply say it's the client's fault. Mm -hmm. They take some share of the blame. So, yeah. they, so, uh, but your argument is very powerful with practitioners. They love to say, mm -hmm. "I'm just following instructions." Push the blame onto somebody <laughs> else. Yeah, we're yeah. all like that, right? Mm -hmm. Somebody to say, it's, it, "There's, there's kind of lots of ethics research on the agency effect. Mm -hmm. If you're acting for somebody else, you're more likely to be unethical than if you're acting for yourself." Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, if you're helping Sham with uh, with something. Uh, you're more likely to maybe cheat on her behalf than you are to cheat on your own behalf. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> Don't get any ideas. <laughs> no academic misconduct here. Um. <laughs> Can't say you aren't warned. <laughs> uh, just in light of those like regulations and like yeah. guiding the government along. Yeah. Uh, the Equality and Human Rights Commission has recently conducted some research yeah. and provided some recommendations to the government on ending sexual harassment at work. Yeah. And the three main areas they kind of focused on were transforming workplace cultures mm -hmm. or um, promoting transparency mm -hmm. or strengthening legal protections. Mm -hmm. uh, they also, like I think, recommended like a mandatory duty for employers as well as a statutory code of practice mm -hmm. so, so as to um, restrict the use of NDAs in relation to serious things like sexual harassment. Yeah. So in light of this, like, how far do you think these recommendations go in tackling issues surrounding NDAs in general? Yeah, I better be... Better be Better confess, I'm not totally on top of that document yet. Um, <laughs> but it looked to me like it was making real progress. Mm -hmm. It was thoughtful. Uh, they thought about the issues. They were trying to find a way forward uh, to improve things. Uh, I think locating the problem in the in the sort of broader context is really important. Mm -hmm. So NDAs are only one part of a bigger problem around sexual harassment and how you resolve complaints in the workplace. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and where you see, certainly where I've talked to or heard from organisations that have a more open, progressive approach to sexual harassment, they it's the whole part of the picture. If they're willing to abandon NDAs, they tend to have a more progressive, open, mm -hmm. robust way of dealing with sexual harassment more generally. Mm -hmm. It's not just about if we get a complaint, we can cover it up and pay people <laughs> off. Right? They yeah. see the whole the broad range of things that need mm -hmm. to be done. I think the issue with that is that there are lots of 
proactive firms, companies, businesses out there who do have these policies and are very open mm. about addressing the issues. Mm. But that's not everybody. No, absolutely right. And, you know, the reliance is on individual companies, businesses, firms, whoever, to almost self-regulate because mm. there's nobody necessarily there to regulate their behaviour. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not sure how we go from, you know, those who really are regulated and proactive mm-hmm. and... This disparity between those who really, really aren't. If we're taking Arcadia for a different, you know, yeah, as an example, yeah, yeah. How do we bridge that gap between those two polarized positions? Yeah, I, I, I don't have a, a definite <laughs> answer to that or a thought-through answer to that. But one of the suggestions is to make um, the employers, the organisations responsible for effective investigation and redress mm. around sexual harassment in in a civil matter or in a criminal matter? Well, you could think about it either way. I guess I haven't really thought about which would work best. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people are mainly thinking about it in a civil sense. Yeah. So they not only have to resolve the complaint effectively in the, mi- in the micro level, if they don't, they face further mm-hmm. costs and risks for not having done so. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the risk extends beyond, if like, the individual wrongdoer mm-hmm. um, to the people managing the process. Yeah. So that people don't feel like they can turn a blind eye or yeah. cover things up. Call me cynical. <laughs> I am cynical, but well. um, I think going back to the point is that if you can, if you take someone to a civil court and they have to pay damages for mm. failing to follow a process or mm. failing to have a proper procedure, mm. then it goes straight back to the issue of we have NDAs because they have the funds to be able to pay people off and buy people with their silence. Yeah, and yeah, that's really important. Uh, the the uh, that is really important, and if. So if you look at one of the reasons why I started to talk about the conduct of the lawyers and their clients around the Philip Green type case and the Zelda Perkins type case, mm-hmm. um, which was about Harvey Weinstein, mm-hmm. uh, was that where these things are being done routinely mm-hmm. to, and in ways which are inhibiting people's willingness or ability to talk to the police in particular, but also mm-hmm. to engage in civil process. Yeah. That was potentially a criminal offence. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, uh, whilst when I first when I first made the point, I thought that was quite a strong point, which people wouldn't really agree with. I actually found practitioners going, you know what? Mm. Not all of them, of course, but some. <laughs> some. So, you know, <laughs> what? You know that, you're, you're right about that. It is actually a criminal offence. We just never thought about it in that yeah. way mm-hmm. uh, because they are. I mean, the the Zelda Perkins case uh, clearly designed on its face, unless we hear something different and. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you look at the document, it looks like it was designed to stop her talking to the police. Yeah. Uh, and so you're paying somebody to stop them talking to the police. That's a bribe. That's yeah. A, that's a perversion of the course of justice. So, yeah, that's a. Uh, whereas lawyers would just say, "We're well, just compromising agreement. We do it all the time." And actually, you have to think about how you do that. Yeah. That's the central point. Yeah. How you do it. There is an appropriate way to do it, and there is an inappropriate way to do it. I think. You know, being reasonable, it's unlikely that we are going to get rid of NDAs um, in mm. in the context that we're discussing at the moment. And on that premise, that you know, NDAs are here. Um, how do you think that we can go about making them more ethical? You know, we've heard I think the Equality and Human Rights Commission made suggestions about letting people have independent legal advice when considering, um, yeah. you know, the implication of an NDA. We've talked about cooling off periods. Yeah. What sort of things do you think might work? Uh, I think calling off periods would be a little bit of help, but not a great deal. Mm-hmm. Um, I think independent mm-hmm. advice, the problem with independent advice is um, how much of the case does it cover? The minute 
the practice, if there is paying for, for an employee to have independent advice, it's usually on whether they can sign the agreement or whether it's enforceable mm -hmm. or something like that, quite limited. Mm -hmm. And actually an employee in that situation needs representation and advice on what should be in that agreement. They need to yeah. have somebody negotiating it for them, probably. So there's that problem. Um, I think it, uh, there's been talk about trying to develop best practice ideas of agreements, what they might look like that are restrained and sensible and balanced. I think probably there could be progress there. Mm -hmm. I think there needs to be a focus on certain types of practice which are probably deeply problematic. So clawback clauses is the example I often mention. So if uh, we have an agreement and you agree to shut up and go away for a million pounds, but if you suddenly stop shutting up, you have to pay me back the million pounds. It's a clawback. Mm -hmm. And you are terrified of saying anything about me or that might in some way relate to the case because you know I can come knocking on my door with my really expensive lawyer and say, I need that million pounds back now. Mm -hmm. And you've paid tax on it and you've spent it or whatever. It's, gone in. it's your home and they, they take your home away. It's that sort of that's mm -hmm. that threat, that sort of Damocles hanging over the... Um, the employee who typically can't afford a lawyer to defend that even if they wanted to and so on and so forth. Mm. Um, that was what was really, one of the things that was really impressive about Zelda Perkins, you know, after 20 years when, you know, she could have just gone with her life and forgotten about it, she decided, you know what, I am going to stand up and speak out about this guy who's massively wealthy. Mm -hmm. She knows can lawyer up. Um, she thinks engages in dirty tricks security surveillance and this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. She's nonetheless willing to say, you know what, I've had enough now, I'm going to speak out. Yeah. Yeah. And I think her speaking out probably encouraged a lot of others to speak out. Mm -hmm. I know the BBC this morning wrote something about Harvey Weinstein reaching a $25 million settlement yes. with his accusers. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, but no mention of whether that's under an NDA. No. <laughs> I, 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 I tweeted that was my first thing. Oh, I wonder if there's an NDA. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I saw that though. Well, I hope the women are satisfied. I hope they are. I really hope they are because they've probably been through an awful lot. Yeah. Mm. No, I couldn't agree more. I mean, that links a lot to, like, when I was personally, when I was doing research for this podcast, like, yep. I came across one of your articles oh, yeah. in your blog. Lawyerwatch.blog. Yeah, yeah. Lawyerwatch.blog. <laughs> little plug. <laughs> yeah, cheeky little plug. Um, when you called kind of NDAs that abuse, what was it, um, abusive defences? Yes. And I think that's that's really interesting in this context because it's kind of, it's almost a dichotomy, isn't it? Like we don't expect defences to be abusive in that respect. But in things like this that's happening in the news, like it is something that's... Bit, and this is about, so you hear a lot about compensation culture, mm -hmm. uh, vexatious litigants, mm -hmm. those kinds of things. These are generally the little people... So, uh, trying to trying to claim back money, maybe stirred up by claimant lawyers sometimes, maybe not mm -hmm. that often, but sometimes. We hear very little about how the banks deal with people, or the big corporates deal with people, or the Harvey Weinstein's of this world mm -hmm. deal with people, and often they behave perfectly properly and sensibly, but they're really used to getting their own way, and there are quite a lot of mm -hmm. concerning tactics you see around cases which are just not scrutinised. Mm -hmm. and, and they're not scrutinised partly because of NDAs and partly because these are really powerful organisations. So if you start to criticise them, you get a letter from Carter Ruck saying, hang on a minute, you might have defamed our client. Yeah, mm. a nice libel claim, won't exactly. you? Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, when I write, every time I write a blog about these kinds of cases, I have to sit there and think, 
is anyone going to come see me? <laughs> is anyone going to come for me? Yeah. <laughs> I think it just, I think ultimately, I mean, overall general themes just highlight a great power imbalance between yeah. um, corporations, individual employees, mm. um, you know, individual employees and others who are just much more powerful, yeah. much more able to use, I think, money ultimately. Yeah. Mm. Um, money talks in these circumstances. It does. And um, I don't think money should be able to um, overplay the criminal law specifically when we're talking about sexual abuse and harassment. Mm. I think definitely in those circumstances, more regulation, more more powerful things are needed to um, stop people using money to cover up their own mistakes. Mm. Yeah, I think it would help. I guess it's exactly. overarching, just a curbing of freedom of speech to a degree. Yeah, there's a chilling, chilling effect. Mm-hmm. There is. Absolutely. Um, you do have to be careful. So I think really to conclude, how do we see future change happening and where do we see progress coming from? I know we said it's election day today. <laughs> well, so I mean, I think um, certainly the SRA, the Solicitor's Regulation Authority, they seem to be at the moment taking it fairly seriously. They're prosecuting people, they're taking sexual harassment in the profession much more seriously. So there are two or three cases where partners have behaved apparently abominably in their firms and they're being disciplined for that. Uh, they're taking some NDA-related cases. So the Zelda Perkins firm, which is you know over 20 years old, they decided to prosecute that mm-hmm. when it would have been very easy for them to say this is a really old case. We mm-hmm. should just maybe let this one go. Uh, and they may not win. You know, there's a risk that they may not win it. So it, it, there's there's. Uh, but I think they're they're trying to take action. The um, uh, the Women in Equality Select Committee. I think they will keep up the pressure on in this regard. I think it's the kind of story the press love. So there's mm-hmm. going to be public pressure from press stories from time to time. So I think that will lead to pressure for legislative reform. Yeah. Um, and uh, so that those two things, I think, m- will lead to some progress. And I, I also think the talking to lawyers, some of them just ignore it. Mm-hmm. Uh, think think this is wrong. Think this is being woke whatever, however they they might describe it. But quite a lot of thought, you know, actually, we do need to think about this. We need to change the way we behave. We don't, maybe don't, shouldn't have all these do's where there's massive amounts of alcohol and people get off their faces Mm -hmm. and try and get off with each other and Mm -hmm. start harassing the trainees or whatever it might be. So, you know, there's, I think those kinds of things are changing quite a bit. I think things are better than when I was your age, for instance, I think think they will continue to get better. Definitely cultural Mm. shifts, especially Mm. amongst um, solicitors' firms. Um, Lots of the Magic Circle, Silver Circle firms um, are, especially, I think, on vacation schemes and things. Mm. I think probably 20 years ago, it used to be try and stay stay sober as you can for two weeks, and Mm. now it's more of um, wholesome activities rather than, you know people getting extremely drunk and um, who knows what else happening. You know, I think trying to avoid those sorts of things and creating more of a cultural shift. Yeah. Um, so perhaps, I guess, how how change is happening is probably multi-aspects in terms of we need legislative change, but also cultural change, I think, is just as great. And reliance on firms to do that's really important as well. Yeah, absolutely right. We've got to call it out. If we see it, we've got to call it out. Absolutely, exactly. yeah. You know, even if it's difficult. Um, but yeah. then you could be get done for whistleblowing and then put under an NDA. So Oof, you the know, whole process yeah. goes. I, you know, I, I had a I, when I was a trainee, a colleague of mine was being sexually harassed by my boss, 
uh, and we talked about whether we should do anything and actually we decided not to. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had colleagues in academia, not here happily, but in academia who've had quite serious problems. Mm. It's a real, it's a really difficult issue yeah. and it often is about power. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you. Thanks My for pleasure. having your time. It's My pleasure. Great. It was fun. Thank you so much. Thank you, Richard, for taking the time out to join us today. And thank you to everyone for listening. Please tune in next time to the Exeter Law Review podcast or find us online at exeterlaw.org where we post weekly articles 